Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for May 26, 2021, National Tap Dancing Day. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am your fleet-footed host. And joining me, as always, is your shuffling co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thank you for being here today. Got my tap shoes all ready, Tom. Good to be here. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Um, We've got some stories uh, that involve a little bit of storage and a little bit of acquisition and divestiture. And first up is Catalogic, uh, because they've decided that they're going to stop copying for now. Well, at least they're going to stop offering their copy data management software, because they have sold that line of business to IBM this week for the usual undisclosed amount. Uh, the deal will see that software likely being added to IBM's Spectrum Discover platform, while Catalogic is free to refocus on their enterprise and cloud data protection offerings. Um, Stephen, is this a solid move on the part of both companies? Absolutely. Um, it's important to know that, uh, well, you may not have even heard of copy data management, but it was a big thing uh, for the last about five years. Um, you know, you know how storage arrays can copy data, like you make snapshots and clones and replications and stuff like that. Well, somebody realized that that's kind of a problem and also an opportunity because you've got these copies of this data. What are you going to do with it? How do you manage it? How do you organize it? How do you make you know practical use of it? And so these companies came along. Uh, Catalogic was one of them. Actifio was another uh, high-profile one. And their whole goal was basically to improve how data is managed using these kind of storage array-based copies. Um, Actifio was always uh, available on a variety of platforms, but uh, Catalogic was always really closely linked to IBM. In fact, it was only recently that they added support for other non-IBM storage platforms. And they were always really close to IBM as well as a company. Uh, we saw this when they presented at Storage Field Day uh, back in 2015. Uh, there were IBM people in the room. Uh, there was some uh, crossover in terms of executives. And frankly, uh, it made a lot of sense to have this combination. And uh, I guess a lot of us in the industry who were aware of such things were sort of waiting for the moment that Catalogic, Catalogic would do exactly this. And that's what they're doing. I think the, uh, the interesting aspect of this uh, really is that, uh, well, there's no story here uh, as far as copy data management going to IBM. The, the most interesting aspect of this story is sort of what does Catalogic do next? And for that, uh, it looks like they're gonna be looking at the Kubernetes data management space, which is another hot space. And frankly, I salute them for that. I hope that they build a cool solution that works with, oh, I don't know, maybe IBM storage and then sell it to IBM in five years. I think that'd be a pretty cool uh, business model for Catalogic to, to, to focus on. I guess the only loser here in the story is that they did uh, broaden their portfolio to support uh, HPE's uh, Nimble storage uh, last year. Um, and I doubt that that's gonna continue uh, under IBM. So. Anyway, there's really not much to say here, except uh, good on you, Catalogic and IBM, and I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Now, Tom, I know that you love to talk about Oracle, uh, and they announced something this week that's kind of interesting. Uh, they're trying to get a leg up on the cloud competition by offering ARM-based instances. Uh, the OCI Ampere A1 compute offering is aimed at general purpose uh, cloud native workloads that need to run at high performance and lower costs. 
Uh, Oracle Cloud VP of product, Matt Leonard, said that the offering adds the already diverse set of architectures available on the platform and will be driven by customer demand. Tom, is there customer demand for this? And is that what's driving this? Or uh, what, what, what should we make of this? I've been waiting for this story for so long. Larry Ellison, congratulations. Welcome to 2018. I kid a little bit because yes, here's the situation. We're seeing a lot of ARM architectures being adopted in the cloud from AWS to Microsoft to Google. So it's a chicken and an egg problem. Do developers need ARM instances to be able to develop or do ARM instances being available cause developers to start developing on ARM? There's no clear cut answer. And the reason why is because Porting your software to ARM, by and large, does require a lot of refactoring. So it's not something you just do. But there's a lot more ARM architecture out there that's becoming available. And quite honestly, I think you know the Apple announcement of the M1 chip is likely going to be the huge driver going forward. Amazon and Microsoft wanted to get in front of that change. And they are loss leaders that can make up the you know racks and racks of ARM architecture that they need to have. Um, until it becomes profitable because enough people will want it. Um, Oracle, on the other hand, well, you know, they do have that big booming database business. But I mean, when they were looking at spending however many billions of dollars they wanted to spend to buy TikTok, because that was a good investment that never happened, um, they couldn't justify putting out ARM architecture yet. Now, that being said, and, and I will give props where they're due, when you look at all the other kinds of processor architectures that Oracle Cloud offers, it's pretty impressive. And it makes you wistful for the days when they were still Sun minus Larry Ellison. But ultimately, I don't think that this is going to move the needle for Oracle customers, Oracle Cloud customers. They don't necessarily need ARM. I think some of them are going to pick this up. I think some of them are going to take advantage of this to develop on different architectures, You know, just kind of to complete the set of our pro product literally runs on anything. But I don't think that when a customer wants to develop on ARM, their first stop is going to be Oracle. I think they'll go to AWS or Google first and maybe Microsoft as a third. Um, but you know, this is just another box to tick. It, I'm sure it'll be a sailboat somewhere down the road. All right, Steven, are you ready for some big news? Because Diamond Laughlin's latest startup is out of stealth and it's a doozy. 22.6 promises to solve essentially every issue that has ever perplexed the storage industry for decades. You know, he's aiming small. Um, are we about to see data availability everywhere, at any speed, on any platform, or is something else entirely going on here? This is an interesting story, Tom. Uh, so just uh, full disclosure, I have known Diamond Laughlin for a long time. Um, he was uh, one of the grand... Uh, people in the storage industry when I was still a whippersnapper, uh, just coming in the doors, looking around at the storage industry. This is a guy who founded um, uh, Nexan, which was a company you've never heard of, but was an important company back in the 2000s. Uh, he was at uh, Tape Library Maker before that. He worked uh, at uh, something called FileTech which again is something you've never heard of, but essentially made a sort of a global file management platform. And it was bought by SGI back in 2013. 
Well, Laughlin's back, uh, having been uh, at a company called Storebite for a while, uh, and he's back with this new startup, 22.6, which, by the way, is the density of osmium. Um, and the product is called Valence. Uh, I guess there's a chemistry angle in here. But the point is, this thing promises like everything. And so I had a briefing with, uh, with Diamond uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was one of those things where I just spent the whole time saying, and that too, and that too, and you do that, and you do that. And um, well, I guess we'll see what happens with it. But uh, just to make sure that it's on record, um, this is a high availability, high performance, parallel access file storage layer with predictive analysis, uh, performance monitoring, data protection, disaster recovery, uh, inline uh, availability, um, data protection and restore capability, active, active access, uh, tiering, metadata management, global indexing, multi-tenancy, uh, and archiving. Uh, and it works with everything, including like client devices, like like phones and enterprise servers and the cloud. Um, I can't wait to learn more about 22.6. And frankly, I can't wait to get them to storage field day to do a deep technical dive of this really amazing sounding product. Stephen, that was quite the reaction to this announcement. And I hope that the company is able to bond with the community. And this is not just something we hear about periodically. <laughs> oh, Tom. Oh, Tom. I catch your chemistry jokes, even from where I'm standing. Thank you. Good. All right, so we're going to go ahead and move into some of the stories we wanted to take a closer look at. And this week would uh, probably have something to do with uh, Google and Google I.O. Uh, because apart from the weird gamified adventure format, uh, Google actually did have a lot to say at I.O. Um, and the key was their seven-step ML ops lifecycle, which tracks from development to monitoring and other kinds of operations. Um, Google did have a lot to say about AI. But did they actually announce anything? And Stephen, as the expert around here on AI, did they actually say anything? Uh, no. But they said a lot. See, that's the crazy thing. So if you look around at, uh, there's kind of a divergence in the AI world between sort of the academic and, 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 and data science worlds and the doing things productively worlds. And um, Google's trying to bridge those, th that gap. And that's really, for me, the message from Google AI uh, or Google I.O. <laughs> Too many eyes. Um, so you may have heard of MLOps before. And um, you may have sort of kind of conceptually thought about this. This is like DevOps, except for AI or machine learning or something. And, and roughly it is. But the thing is, Google is using machine learning uh, probably more than any other company on the planet. Uh, they use ML everywhere in their internal uh, applications and operations, and they make it available to developers in the Google Cloud. And the Google Cloud can sometimes seem a little um, obscure when you're looking at more conventional clouds like Amazon AWS. Um, but you know, Google does a lot of cool things there. 
And it's all kind of around making available the googly way of doing things to other companies. And that's essentially what they've done here with their Vertex AI model. Essentially, they've got a seven-stage workflow that goes from development to data processing, operational training, uh, deployment and servicing, uh, workflow orchestration, artifact organization, and model monitoring. And it, and it sounds like something that a uh, you know like a first-year MBA student might have come up with, but actually, it makes a lot of sense. And the whole thing really actually tracks with what Google is actually doing with machine learning in their cloud internally and what they're trying to make available to customers uh, using the cloud and using ML. And remember too, that Google is a really important voice in machine learning. I mean, the company has uh, contributed massive amounts to projects like TensorFlow and um, you know, they're continuing to do that with uh, you know, things like Lambda and MUM. And frankly, I think what we're seeing here at Google I.O. is exactly what I said before, which is that they're trying to help developers along that path so that other people can be as big users of ML as Google themselves are. And frankly, that's a big ask. Uh, my personal take on Google I.O. is once again, we're hearing a lot of stuff that's really maybe too far out ahead of the marketplace and out ahead of where developers are. And we're starting to see, um, you know, sort of the, the, the Google train pulling ahead of the rest of the market. And, and I applaud them for trying to throw these lifelines out there and trying to help other people catch up. But I'm afraid it might not be enough. Uh, they're, they're, they're just so far out ahead of the market with their AI. I don't see this uh, closing that gap. Yeah, I, I've always gotten the feeling that, especially on some of these kind of cutting edge technologies, Google's not skating to where the puck is going to be. They're showing up at the arena where the next game is going to be. Like they're that far ahead, which ha can pay off when you're like really far ahead of, of the trend and you can kind of set where you want things to be. But if the industry decides to kind of bear a little bit more to the left or the right around you, just because they, you know, they have a new solution that comes up or customer demand really doesn't materialize for that, you're kind of left holding the bag. I, I guess that's great if you can fund your AI development with ad revenue, but a lot of other companies don't have that luxury. And so I, I kind of wish that Google, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. I kind of wish Google would nail their feet to the ground for like a couple of years and actually listen to the people that use their products as opposed to telling the people how to use their products and where they're going to be building them. Because I think it would give them a fascinating insight into how operations actually works. Yeah, and fundamentally what Google's doing is they're building uh, platforms and technologies for themselves and then uh, making them available for the rest of the world. It's just... Uh, you know, it's it's like the Vulcans coming to Earth in Star Trek and being like, okay, you know, here's phasers and transporters and warp engines and the Earth people being like, ah, what's all that stuff? Yeah, th that's Google. They're the Vulcans. So what can you do? Um, and of course, we do have our AI Field Day event this week, uh, tomorrow and Friday. Uh, tune in from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. for uh, presentations on more practical applications of AI that are more relevant to the folks that are listening to uh, the rundown. Hey, Tom, you ever use IRC, IRC, Internet Relay Chat? Well, if you do, you might have heard of something called Freenode, 
which is essentially the hub of the decentralized and hubless ERC network. Um, it appears that uh, Freenode is in the midst of a hostile takeover. Uh, the ownership is uh, being uh, taken over by uh, a, a new owner, Andrew Lee, who's well known in the Bitcoin community and uh, frankly, very controversial. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the whole 8chan, 8kun, all that kind of stuff thing. And frankly, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, the, one of the first things that Lee did was basically legal up to protect himself and the company from accusations and what he calls slander. Um, what the heck is going on here, Tom? Anytime I see a whole lot of people running for the door at once, I get really curious. When I see a bunch of volunteers running for the door as fast as possible, I get really worried. So yes, they are very irked at what happened here. Um, the article that's linked in the show notes uh, probably is a little bit more um, polarizing than, than this discussion is going to be. But essentially what it sounds like happened is that one of the people who was involved in the LLC that is like the holding company that kind of manages and, and owns Freenode um, sold the company to this Korean Bitcoin millionaire who then for the last few months um, has been putting money into the network and then suddenly everybody runs for the door. And the statement that, by the way, the statement that he released, which was a PDF published to GitHub, so missing the point, um, is interesting to say the least. Um, let me see if I can summarize. I gave you all of this money and protected you from getting sued and this is how you treat me? <sighs> the nerve of some people. Not a good tone to take with essentially people who are internet famous. Um, I am not exactly sure what's going on here. And I'm not even really sure what the purpose of buying Freenode is. Are you hoping to like AstroTurf your re reputation for something? Like there are better ways to do it. Uh, you could get a newspaper way cheaper. Um, but like, what's the ultimate goal? Are you going to carve it up and sell it off? It's IRC. It ain't worth that much. I, I, I'm curious to see what the end game here is. But of course, given where he made all of his money, um, I mean, maybe he has a very long view of pretend things on the internet that might eventually be valuable. I, I really don't know. Um, I just know that if you're on Freenode, you might want to move to something a little less controversial like I don't know, Microsoft Teams. The whole thing is kind of amusing if you're yeah. not part of it. Um, from the outside, the, the things that people are saying, again, we, I don't have an opinion on this. Um, I have used IRC. Um, I've used it for over 30 years. And um, I uh, don't really have an opinion on what's happening here because it's basically a decentralized network. And I imagine that somebody else will take it up. And also because you know people are on Slack and Discord and all sorts of other things these days. Um, yeah, this is some weird, weird stuff. But if you read some of these resignation letters too, uh, they're super, super amusing. Yeah, this isn't scorched earth. This is nuking from orbit. Um, some of them are pretty pointed, which tell, well, but what do you expect from people whose job it is, is to be on IRC all day long? 
you're basically getting resignation letters from people who have to fight internet trolls on a daily basis. I'm sure they are glorious. All right, Stephen, um, we do have a little bit of technology news. NAND inventor Dr. Fujio Masoka has developed a new type of dynamic flash memory that promises to combine the best of NAND flash with DRAM. Although it's a little more than a paper right now, the technology could become just as important as NAND, and think about how important that is in our daily lives. What should we make of this new memory technology? And we'll link to the paper in the show notes so you guys can take a look at it and, and read to your heart's content. But Stephen, you're the storage expert. What's this all about? Well, if I had a dollar for every new storage technology that is proposed and seems promising and then never goes anywhere, I would have at least a couple dollars. Uh, there's been a lot of these these different technologies out there. And um, you know, frankly, most of them have gone nowhere. But that doesn't mean that all of them have gone nowhere. Uh, it's important to remember that NAND flash, which is, after all, probably the foundation of modern computing, as much as uh, you know, technologies like ARM and multi-core and uh, you know, distributed graphics processing and things like that. I mean, uh, these are foundational technologies, and NAND has become one of the most important technologies in the world. Well, uh, NAND was developed uh, only in 1980. Um, it didn't exist really until the 90s. Uh, it wasn't really uh, used practically until the 2010s. So basically in 10 years, we've gone from zero to 100 in terms of uh, penetration of NAND flash. I mean, nowadays everything has NAND flash in it. But NAND flash has uh, issues. It is limited in terms of uh, capacity. And improving capacity generally impacts its ability to write and rewrite, which users of the new hot Chia cryptocurrency are facing as they wear out flash drives in literally months because they're uh, using consumer SSDs that have limited write cycles. Um, we've also seen a lot of investment in an alternative technology uh, that we've talked about here called 3D Crosspoint. Uh, that was an alternative that kind of combines some of the best aspects of DRAM with some of the best aspects of uh, flash memory in terms of being persistent, uh, being high performance. Uh, but even the resources of Intel have faced a pretty uphill challenge in uh, making their Optane 3D Crosspoint products a success. And most of the other technologies that we've heard of, memristors and RERAM and stuff like that, have not gotten anywhere. In fact, uh, as the internet wags would say, they're always five years from taking over the world, and they've been that way for about 10 years. So what should we make of this thing? Well, frankly, uh, DFM is pretty promising because it's pretty practical. It doesn't add any new uh, ingredients to the pot. It essentially takes traditional materials, traditional um, approaches, and, and does it in a different way that gives you persistent memory that's based on DRAM. One of the other interesting things here is that it is actually on point with the current trends in the silicon industry because instead of being a horizontal laid out product, it is actually vertical on the, the wafer. In other words, the, uh, the components all stack up and are kind of designed to be like that. And, and remember, that's how 
our friends at IBM managed to deliver what they claim is a two uh, nanometer process node um, just last week. So frankly, this looks pretty good. And again, I say that as somebody who's super, super skeptical of all these new uh, memory technologies. Uh, this one looks pretty good. So I'm going to keep my eye on it, but I think it's too early to say that this is going to be an impactful invention. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess the, the last thing that I should say about it is the fact that, uh, you know, Dr. Masuoka, he is the inventor of NAND Flash. And um, to have him be the one behind this is, uh, you know, pretty positive sign. So I, I'd say uh, let's keep an eye on this because uh, the industry has been hungry for something to replace NAND flash. Uh, it's been hungry for an alternative to 3D Crosspoint. And um, this is one of the more promising suggestions. Yeah, I think when you've got the pedigree of the guy who invented it with existing technology reuse, so you can keep your development costs down and enough forethought behind it to actually not just be a flash in the pan that you're hoping gets bought by some major storage vendor that's your exit strategy i mean there's there's real potential here you so said I'm flash sure in the pan man you said flash in the pan yes yes i did that one's for you i'm gonna remember that tom thank you thank you you should um that will just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. Uh, we're done with making puns for now, at the very least. But, um, Stephen, you've got a busy week ahead. Uh, what's going on with you? Well, uh, it is indeed uh, time for the old AI field day. So we have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, AI field day, uh, Thursday, tomorrow, and Friday, uh, May 27th and 28th. If you tune in at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, you'll see Scality uh, with their Arteska Edge AI storage uh, object store. Um, at 10 a.m. Pacific time, you'll see Liquid, uh, who we've talked about here on the, on the show sometimes with a uh, disaggregated uh, compute platform. On Friday morning at 8 a.m., we've got BrainChip, which is making a super low-powered neural network on a chip. Uh, you kind of got to see it to believe it, and the good news is you're going to see it at AI Field Day. Um, uh, then we've got Memverge, which is sort of the darlings of the industry right now because they're making use of uh, Optane technology to provide more memory and more memory functionality than we've ever seen before. And then we're wrapping up with a little company called Intel. And Intel is surprisingly not coming with a bunch of chips and so on. They're gonna talk about uh, Katana Graph and Analytics Zoo, which are two software projects they've been doing uh, in the AI space. Uh, all these sessions are live streamed at techfieldday.com. And of course, they're all recorded and will be saved up on our YouTube channel. So just go to youtube.com slash techfieldday, click subscribe, and uh, you'll see great presentations from Scality, Liquid, Brainchip, Memverge, and Intel. Uh, and of course, lots of other great uh, stories and presentations and discussions with our independent delegates uh, from all sorts of companies in security and storage and networking and mobility and everything else. So that's what I've got uh, in the works. Of course, we've also got our podcasts, and I'm pretty happy with the uh, Tuesday uh, podcasts that we're doing of utilizing AI. So if you're interested in this whole topic of AI, you might check out the Utilizing AI podcast, which comes out every Tuesday as well. All right. Well, you've definitely got a busy week ahead, and we have a lot of other great events that are going to be coming up in the next few months. Um, so you want to head over to techfieldday.com and check those out. But in the interim, you can head over to gestaltit.com and see some of the great coverage that we've had from some of our previous events that have been going on this year. 
um, we've got some great folks that are writing some good articles that you're going to want to check out. Um, but for today, for us, uh, we want to thank you very much for tuning in. Remember, you can catch us every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time. Uh, set your clock, set a reminder, set a calendar to yourself uh, to catch us on our website at gestaltit.com. Catch us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo or wherever you happen to consume us. Um, if you want to catch us on a recording, you can also subscribe to our podcast feed. Um, and we would be very happy to bring you the dulcet tones of the news every week. Uh, but for Stephen Foskett and myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for all of our great community members here at gestaltit.com, thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope that you have an amazing day.